today's scripture comes from Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 to 21. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 to 21. Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's word. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note to those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have told, often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that, enabled him, that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that uh, they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, everybody. It's good to see a lot of our college students back for spring break this past week as well. And so welcome back. And if you don't know already, we have been studying the seven deadly sins, which we call the seven killjoys. And we are on week six. And this is our sixth one. And today we talk about gluttony. And gluttony is interesting, and we're just going to talk about it, and I want to hit uh, three points, or just answer three questions, really. Why is it so bad? What is it exactly, and how do we fight against it? So why is it so bad? What is it exactly, and how do we fight against it? So why is it so bad? Last week, we talked about greed, and people think, a lot of people think, that that's something I am not guilty of. In fact, I did share that when Tim Keller did his um, Seven Deadly Sins series, his wife said, I bet that greed will be the least popular. And indeed, greed was the least popular. But need I remind you that Jesus talked about greed more than any other sin in the Bible. Greed is a killjoy that no one thinks they're guilty of, and yet Jesus talks about it more than anyone else, more than any other sin. Next week, so I had some people come up to me and said, I can't wait for lust, because that's a big one. Next week, we're talking about lust. If greed is a sin that no one thinks they're guilty of, lust is a killjoy that everyone knows they're guilty of, but they think they're helpless against. If greed is a a killjoy that no one thinks they're guilty of, lust is a killjoy that everyone knows that they're guilty of, and yet they think they are helpless against. So, And I think it's so perfect that we are talking about gluttony today. Gluttony is a killjoy that everyone knows they are guilty of, and they think they are helpless against it, or they don't think they're guilty of it at all. 
So it could be either on the side of greed or lust. And gluttony, everyone thinks they're guilty of and I just can't do anything about it. Or they think, it's not really that big of a sin for me. And in fact, if you rated the seven deadly sins in a survey, I saw one poll, gluttony was all the way last in that list. Here's the thing. No one thinks it's that bad of a sin. How did gluttony make it up there? You might be wondering. Because when we give into greed, this is what happens. We make our money and possessions our God. When we give into lust, we make sex our God. But when we give into gluttony, we make what our God? A lot of people say food. That's not the right answer. When we give into gluttony, we make our stomach our God. J.I. Packer put it this way. For us, there are still great gods. He was talking about idols in the past. And you know how in the Old Testament, there were, there were the idols of Baal and Asherah. But today he is saying there are still great gods. And they are sex, shekels, and stomach. Shekels meaning money. So it's sex, money, and our stomach. These are the great gods of today. And he calls it the unholy trinity constituting one God, the God of the self. If we look at Romans 16, verse 18, it talks about people causing strife. So when people cause division and strife in the church by going against what is being taught, Paul writes, such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. So if you cause strife and trouble, you go against what the church is teaching, you are grumbling, you call, you're causing division, you're saying, I'm in this group, I'm in that group. Paul is saying, you are not serving God or Jesus at all, but you're serving your own appetite. So there are two things that we must realize. It's not just about the physical stomach, but the spiritual stomach. It's important for us to realize because the first temptation was ultimately this sin. Was exactly this, in fact. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, so that's food, physical stomach, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, spiritual stomach. She took it. And ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. There are two sides to this coin that we must understand if we are to understand gluttony. And so, what is it exactly? We want to start off with the physical aspect, the food. And the question is are you controlled by your stomach when it comes to food? When we eat foods that are obviously unhealthy, we comment to ourselves and to those around us at how much of a glutton we are. And we say it jokingly. But it's okay because all I have to do is run tomorrow or go to the gym. Just hit the gym harder and we tell ourselves that it might be gluttony we are suffering from. This is so prevalent in our culture, in our society, 
that this should ring a bell for each and every single one of us. There is a famous bodybuilder, weightlifter. He's a son of a Pentecostal preacher. His name is C.T. Fletcher. And he, his regular regimen every day for lunch, and he, he's an incredible lifter. He, he broke so many, what was it? I think it was um, curl records, so curling, and bench records while he was competing. But his regular lunch was four Big Macs, four fries, four apple pies, and two shakes. This is just lunch. For 20 years, every single day, he thought he was unstoppable. He thought he was, he was just, you know, impervious to any kind of anything, really. Thought it was invincible until he needed open-heart surgery. And now he doesn't eat four Big Macs, four fries, four apple pies, and two shakes for lunch every day. I think this mentality hits us I think, around the age of 38. And around 38, it catches up to you. And then you realize that all this undisciplined dieting and how much you manage what you've eaten in your life, it catches up to you. Because after a while, you eat something and you gorge yourself on something. It doesn't matter how much you run or hit the gym. It stays on and you feel terrible. You feel like... I think I'm going to get a disease the next morning. And it catches up to you. But when you're in your 20s, perhaps you think you are invincible, just as C.T. Fletcher did, until 20 years pass and you can't stop because you've had this habitual regimen of eating terrible things, of letting your stomach control whatever you eat it because it's all about you, isn't it? But it's not just about overeating. It's also what we'd like to think. We'd like to think of it as controlled eating. Oh, it's about me portioning. So people say it like this, but this is an excerpt from the screw tape letters. C.S. Lewis wrote this. And if you don't know, the screw tape letters is about an older, more senior demon who is teaching his screw tape. He is teaching his nephew, a young junior demon, Wormwood, on how to tempt people and how to get them to stumble. So C.S. Lewis wrote this book, and it's a collection of letters from Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood. And he talks about how successful this other demon was. His name is Glubos. Glubos had this old woman well in hand. She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. She is always turning from what has been offered to her to say with a demure little sigh and a smile, Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea. Weak, not too weak, and the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. You see, because what she wants is smaller and less costly, Then what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants. However troublesome it may be to others, at the very moment of indulging her appetite, she believes that she is practicing temperance. In a crowded restaurant, she gives a little scream at the plate which some overworked 
waitress has set before her and says, Oh, that's far, far too much. Take it away and bring me a quarter of it. If challenged, she would say she was doing this to avoid waste. In reality, she does it because the particular shade of delicacy to which we have enslaved her is offended by the sight of more food than she happens to want. Now, this is very, very profound because a lot of things was said in the past, and it said, like, oh, this could never happen. It could never happen. But you see, as time progresses, and if this sin isn't dealt with, what happens now? What about today? C.S. Lewis was a few decades before, but what happens now? Today, this is how we order. I would like a caramel macchiato, venti, skim, extra shot, extra hot, extra whip, sugar-free. And that's a normal order. And if it's not extra hot, I send it back. I would like a grande chai tea latte, three pumps, skim milk, light water, no foam, extra hot. What's light water? But that's an actual order. They want light water. And this, I think, is the worst that I found. I would like a tall, non-fat latte, 2% foam. It seems simple. But do you see what that order is? It's a non-fat latte with 2% foam. So they have to... They have to heat up two different kinds of milk just to make you a tall latte. This is the society that we live in and we think it's normal and we think it's not a sin. This is exactly what we want. This is my temperance. And if we don't get what we want, we rage and we say, this isn't what I'm paying for. And yet the question is, what is controlling you? Are you truly controlling what you put in your stomach or is your stomach controlling you. There is, of course, the other side, the spiritual aspect. And in the spiritual aspect, if you continue to indulge yourself and let your stomach control you, I have to tell you, your spirit gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And next time temptation comes, it doesn't even feel like a battle. Don't you feel me here? Can't you see this happening? As we continue to indulge ourselves, the temptations don't really seem like temptations anymore. In fact, they're just, all right, fine. I guess. Eventually, we get to a point where we don't even think twice. And so we have to look at the spiritual aspect and what is the opposite of gluttony, and that is the fruit of, of the Spirit. And in the fruit of the Spirit, there is self-control. What does self-control help us against? Temptation. If when we don't practice self-control and indulge ourselves with whatever and whenever we want, we make our stomachs our God, our appetites control us, and we crumble under temptation. But don't we realize, don't you realize when you're enticed with something, it's going to kill you and destroy you and you're giving in. We give in to sin. We give in to this thing that will kill our joy, convincing ourselves, why are you stopping me from enjoying myself? But in fact, it is killing us. John Piper says that, 
sin gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be more happy if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. And what we've been going through these series is that this is the ultimate lie that has been placed before us. If I do this, it will make me happier. But as we continue to do these things, we are less happy. We enjoy food even less. The taste isn't as good as the first time. And what do we do? We go to even more extremes. Deeper sin. That first taste of this was so good. Let me get five just measurings of it. It doesn't make it taste better. This is what temptation does. There's an Australian bush country that grows a little plant called the sundew. It has a a slender stem, tiny round leaves fringed with hairs that glisten with bright drops of liquid as delicate as fine dew. It's because of this, it's, it's, it's this way because of the beautiful blossoms. It blossoms red, white, and pink. But woe to the insect who dares to dance on the leaf. Because these leaves are deadly. The shiny moisture on each leaf is sticky and will imprison any bug that touches it. As an insect struggles to free itself, the vibration causes the leaf, the leaf or the leaves to close tightly around it. And this innocent looking plant then feeds on its victim. Sin breaks apart our relationships. It deteriorates it, making it seem almost impossible to restore. Do I need to testify of this? Don't you know how hard it is to restore a broken relationship? It doesn't become restored just because you simply wish it would be. The damage is done. And when we fall into into temptation... This is what we are giving into. So how do we fight against it? Practice self-control. It's a lie to think that whenever we give into temptation, whenever we overindulge ourselves, we are exercising freedom. Self-control is freedom. Where gluttony is slavery. When you overindulge, you don't enjoy your food. It makes you feel disgusted. Your self-image drops. It even stops you from tasting well. You can't stop anymore, though, because your stomach has become your master. Self-control is when you indulge yourself, yes, but at the right moment, at the right time. Then the food actually does satisfy you. When your appetite is controlled, your stomach does not imprison you. Self-control also means to indulge yourself, not just at the right time, at the right moment, but on the right spiritual food. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he was drawn into the desert, and this is a very famous story that you guys are all familiar with. He was drawn into the desert, and Satan says, aren't you hungry? Then why don't you take these stones and change it into bread? What's so wrong about that if you think about it? Jesus is hungry. He, can, he has all the power in the world, 
And if he's hungry, then he can be able to change anything. He can change stones into bread. Satan knew this, so he tempted Jesus. He said, why don't you, since you're hungry, change these stones into bread? Because clearly you are powerful. You are God. You made everything. You can do this. And Jesus responds with a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And I'm going to read you the whole verse. And he says, in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you or your ancestors had known. So this is the prefix to that verse. This is when Jesus replies simply, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, it's important to know what comes before, isn't it? When Jesus says this, he is saying something. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus' stomach did not control Jesus' actions. In fact, what he is really saying then is this manna points to Jesus. He is the word of God. Read that verse over and over again. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 on your own. Manna points to Jesus, but he is also the word of God. That means we are to feed ourselves, most importantly, not on cake, not on dessert, not on steak, but most importantly on Jesus. And how does he continue to teach us this? It is in the Lord's Supper when we break bread, we take the wine, we remember Jesus, we remember what Christ did for us. Food then during the Lord's Supper is holy, but it reminds his disciples of what Jesus did and who he is. How? Bread. This is the body broken for you. That means his body was given to us as a sacrifice. Jesus came down, took the form of a man, and gave himself to us. Wine, blood poured out to signify the new covenant. As Jesus shed his blood, a new covenant was given. A promise was given. Now, He is our God before it was only the God of the Israelites, was it not? And now he is a God for us. We were able to join the table of God because of Jesus. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the death of Lord Jesus until he comes. That means every time we gather, we pray. And this is something that I teach youth group when I taught college. Every time we gather together at a table, before we eat food, we pray together. None of this, you know, we'll pray on our own. Doesn't matter how loud it is. Doesn't matter how many people there are. We pray together. And this is what I want to encourage every single family to do. And if you're not here with your family, then go back and tell your children or go back and tell your parents, this is how I would like to do dinner. Pray together first. Because when we pray, we signify that the Lord is God over this table. 
And over this community, Jesus is God. And it's Jesus that holds this community together. It is Jesus that holds this family together. You try to have any other single member of the family hold the family because you look to that person as the ultimate family representative, you will fail. Your family will fall apart. It will deceive itself into thinking it's because of me. But you see, the Lord saves us from that. He saves us from that sin by saying that now when you gather together, you pray together. And you signify that the Lord is God over this table. So when we pray for food together, for me, it's an incredibly, incredibly important part of the meal. And I love it that we have someone that would pray. And for me, it's not about how short it is. Honestly, I know some people are like, oh, if it's too long, then that's not a good meal prayer. I honestly don't care. Because if you want to signify the Lord is Lord over this table, then yes, pray with your heart. And if that leads you to pray a long time and stomachs start grumbling, <laughs> then I suppose that's on you. But um, I guess in moderation, please, please. No our dinner prayers, fathers. Uh, anyway, um, But this reminds us of this very last part of the passage. Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, by the power, enable us to bring everything under his control. He will transform our lowly bodies, and that will be like his glorious body. Who can say that we can conquer gluttony. I don't know if there's anybody that can say I can fully conquer gluttony. My stomach doesn't control me at all. I can't even say that because when I get hungry, I get angry. And that is where we get hangry from. And so there is something that I need to control. So during this 40-day fasting period, pastors have come up to me to ask me, Pastor Eugene, are you fasting for 40 days again? And then I was wondering, oh, because they're interested in my fast. Because my fasts are always, you know, kind of cool and sometimes extreme. But no, they weren't asking because they were interested in my fast. They were asking because they needed to know if I was going to be angry at them for no reason during the week. I just might blow up. I was like, oh, you know, why is the door open? I was like, what? Anyway, so yes, we all fail in this manner. And we all need to practice self-control. And the way we do it is by indulging and feeding on Christ in our lives. That's how you do it. And I know there are people that think that if I talk about gluttony, we're going to do some kind of fat shaming or anything like that. Absolutely not. I am here to say that this sin is so prevalent In our day, in our culture, we have made a system where now when you look on Facebook, they have one-minute videos of how to make food that you won't eat that day. But you'll just see a video, something like tasty. I don't know. It's called, And then you just scroll, and then there's like someone's making some kind of cheesecake. And you know what I do? I actually watch the whole minute. I was like, oh, that's how they make this Oreo cheesecake. And I was like, what, is the, what does that do? What, how does that help me? It doesn't. I'm never going to bake that no-bake Oreo cheesecake. But it's there. 
And I'm just like, oh. And the stomach is really trying to control. Can't we see the truth in this? It's not about shaming anybody, but it's about coming to the point where we see we all need a Savior. And if you want a Savior that is comprehensive, that is holistic, now i got to tell you, all the programs in the world can help you a little bit, but it won't help you completely. There's only one Savior that can help you completely, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Isn't that an amazing promise? Can you imagine saying, no, man shall not live by bread alone to temptation when it sits in front of you. But that's the promise Jesus gives us as his disciples. Continue then to feed yourself on Jesus. Let's pray. Let's reflect at this time on this sin, the sin of gluttony. Let's reflect in our lives how many times we have been controlled and how our stomach has moved us with our actions. Our appetites, which were unhealthy, made us do these things where it would destroy our relationships, destroy especially our relationship with God. And let's take this time to repent our sin before Him knowing that He, when we repent, when we turn to Him, He turns back to us and He restores us. He will transform our bodies so that it will be like His. So as we pray, let's hold on to this promise. Let's pray.